when I was a kid, I wanted to be an NBA player when I grew up. And now I'm the co-founder of Mad Happy, a clothing brand based in L.A. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Hello, hello, it's Ben. Before we get into this week's conversation with Mad Happy's Payment Raff, I wanted to give a quick heads up that this episode was recorded before we went into quarantine. There are a few points throughout the conversation where Payment and I reference parties that Mad Happy has thrown, including an awesome block party on Melrose Place in Los Angeles that happened last summer. I felt like those portions were worth keeping in this episode because not only did those parties play a key role in growing the brand, but also because the approach that Payman and his co-founders have taken in terms of creating something that brings people together for a good cause, that also has the ancillary benefit of drawing attention to your brand and driving sales, that ethos is something that Matt Happy has continued to pull off during the pandemic in a number of ways, whether that's through their local Optimist publication or facilitating Instagram live conversations and meditations with leaders in the mental health community, or sparking a dialogue around Mental Health Awareness Month by posing a new question on Instagram every day that's centered around mental health and then reposting illuminating responses from some really accomplished people. All this is to say, if you're listening to this episode and looking to glean some insight into how Mad Happy grew their brand, that spirit of community is the overarching thing that resonates with me And the block parties are just one of many admirable examples that Payman and his co-founders have achieved so far. That's the end of my little preamble for today. Now I'll let you enjoy the conversation I had with Payman Raff. Today I'm joined by Payman Raff, co-founder of Mad Happy. Founded in April 2017 by Payman and co-founders Joshua Sitt, Mason Spector, and Noah Raff, Los Angeles streetwear brand Mad Happy is trying to reduce the stigma around mental health one hoodie at a time. Its colorful pieces exude positivity with words and phrases like optimism and log off stitched across the front. To promote a sense of well-being and community among its mostly young customers, Mad Happy has opened 10 pop-up stores in cities like New York and Los Angeles. In 2019, Mad Happy raised $1.8 million in funding from LVMH Luxury Ventures, designer Tommy Hilfiger, and the founders of Sweetgreen. The brand's four co-founders were recently listed on the 2020 edition of Forbes' 30 Under 30. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Payman. Thanks, man. Yeah, so we like to start off over here with something that sparked our curiosity recently. Is there something you've seen or thought about that's, that's gotten the wheels turning? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, think, I think for me, it's like we're at an interesting time now where before you, you only used to have like a couple choices. So if you wanted to, for example, buy clothes and you're a male around our age, you'd probably go to J. Crew or one of those brands. Um, and that was just because like you didn't really have that many other choices. So it would let a brand like J. Crew become really big and grow really fast. I think that's changed a lot now with one, the internet, two, the ease of opening stores, three, the access to information. So people are able to create any type of brand or company that feels like a very specific vertical. So everything's become more niche to like this, the person so you could find exactly what you want right so if you like um hiking in joshua tree there's probably like a blog that you, you could follow and has like all the information there for you um and and i think that is a unique opportunity in that 
you can create a sustainable business off of like whatever your specific interests are. Uh, whereas before it was much harder because you were competing against these like larger and larger brands. Um, and then I think that also means that it's not really as possible or as wanted to create another brand that's a two, three, four billion dollar specific clothing brand like a J. Crew was. And uh, that's interesting for us, obviously, because uh, what we're what we think we're doing is like super unique uh, and it gives us a lane to be able to kind of do what we want. Awesome. I have a bunch more questions to follow up on that. But real quick, just to get to my curiosity out of the way, something that I've seen recently that you might appreciate as well, there's a docu-series on Netflix called Abstract, the Art of Design. And so every episode features a different kind of design-focused creative. And so I just watched this episode with Tinker Hatfield, who designed all the Jordans for Nike and all these other amazing shoes. And you get to see just their process and how they do things. And I'm starting this other one that... The, it's the stage designer for Beyonce and Kanye and just really how they take something that has fundamentals and just throw the fundamentals out the window and do their own thing. And it's just really cool to watch, especially as somebody who like has grown up around sneakers and my brother it likes to buy and sell sneakers. So I'm always seeing these and I never understood like the creative process behind it. And it's cool now to just see these very talented people in their workspaces and see how they do what they do. Yeah, that's dope. So something you guys might enjoy as well. So right now we're recording this in the Mad Happy headquarters in the Arts District in LA. Can you set the scene for the listeners where we're at? Yeah, so earlier this year, like around January, we moved into this building, like a 2,500 square foot building across a couple of rooms. Uh, and it, it, it honestly was needed a lot of work when we first moved in so it's been it's been a work in progress uh but it's been cool as like this area started to pick up and we still produce everything in los angeles so like pretty close to here so yeah. it was important for us to like have a spot around here that made it more convenient and also kind of lay our roots in a place that was up and coming yeah. um and, and for us like this place can grow we have another uh, building outside that we can move into uh once we need it uh and we feel like it's cool right now we're specifically in our studio where we uh, we, we do most of our e-com shoots uh we're setting up a little podcast studio here as well so that's where we're currently sitting uh and yeah it's been pretty cool awesome and so the brand is still fairly young you guys started in 2017 can you tell me a little bit about the vision behind the brand how you guys as four co-founders came together and uh once you guys had this vision how do you decide okay these are the next steps this is what we have to do next yeah, for sure. I think for us, it, there wasn't any like really specific plan when we started. I think the idea first of the name came from Mason, who randomly texted it to one of his friends, like just the word Mad Happy. And when my brother and, and I talked to Mason about it, we really liked the concept. And him and my brother had started a clothing line together in high school. So when when we were talking about it, it seemed like a really cool idea to try to build this brand around positivity and optimism. I think a lot of the stuff is like now, like in hindsight, makes sense. But w when we, when we were just coming up with it, it was like pretty much like kind of guessing and, and going like one thing after the other. Uh, and then we met Josh, who who became our fourth co-founder uh, in late 2016, and we we just started like really pretty quietly in April of 2017 online, and then just started doing like really short temporary stores and. 
uh, got the ball rolling from there. But it really started as something like super small. Yeah. And I'm always fascinated by brands in their early days, how they stand out, what they do to distinguish themselves. And I was reading about the parties that you guys did in different cities, just free block parties and how effective they were. Can you tell me how you decided about your launch strategy, especially with the parties and, and the planning that went into that? Yeah, for sure. So we actually didn't do our first block party till last year, like uh, summer of last year. But what we would do is every time we had a pop up, um, no matter how big the space was, we would figure out how to throw like a really big launch party. So our first one was in May of 2017. We had the space on Robertson for like a month. And there was just like a cool opportunity to like throw a party, like get it sponsored. So it was like free for everyone. We obviously are from L.A., so we know a lot of people. And it was a cool way to bring our friends together, have them start like sharing what we're up to. And uh, if people were interested, then like they could, you know, trickle in and learn more. Uh, and then I think one other thing we were doing early on is our clothes, like a lot of our hoodies have like that stitching on the side. And I think that was pretty unique in that no one had really seen that before. So it put us in a good spot for people to recognize it and like it kind of it to market itself. Right. And so there, there are four of you as co-founders. How did you guys you mentioned you met Josh along the way? How did you guys meet Josh? Yeah. So Josh uh, was roommates at Georgetown with my brother's best friend, Brandon, uh, who, you know. Yeah. Um, and so he had heard through Brandon that we were working on something and was interested about it. Um, so we talked super early on and it made sense to join forces. Awesome. And how do you guys split up the responsibilities among the four of you? Yeah, for sure. I, I think earlier on, uh, it's a little bit harder to like split any responsibilities because there's like so many different things to do. Yeah. Right. And even still, like I wouldn't say we have like super clear roles. Uh, we're still only like 10 people full time. Uh, but but I think it becomes clear, like what people want to be working on and what their focus is on. So me and Josh are more on on the business and marketing side. My brother and Mason are more on the creative and design side. But there's definitely a lot of crossover between the two. Sure. And I was just when I, in my research, I saw that your stores have been featured in Architectural Digest, which is so cool. Like how many brands can have that claim? And so there's a lot of thought that goes into these stores. And if you, anyone has gotten a chance to go to the Soho location or the Melrose pop up, it's a very beautiful and very cool store. And it seemed like there was a lot of intention behind it. Can you talk about the planning and design that goes into your pop ups? Yeah, for us, I think pop ups has been such a large part of what we do. And we're kind of uniquely set up in that we're setting up pop-ups that feel and look like permanent stores. Uh, and now that they've gone a bit longer, so we used to do a few weeks to a month. Now we're doing at least two months, but uh, with the potential to extend. So our Melrose one is going to be open for six months oh, at nice. the end of this year. Uh, I think we're able to come up and, and I honestly don't do any of the pop-up design, but my brother and Mason and, and anyone else who works on it is able to come up with a really like, cool, innovative concept that doesn't cost that much money to execute uh, and set it up in a way where people can come and experience the brand by not just by buying the clothes. Yeah. And one of the recent developments that's happened uh, was your Apple Pen collaboration, which I thought is so cool because you guys are an L.A. brand and so is the Apple Pen. And I'm just curious, like, how do you identify what's a cool collaboration and how do they come about? Do you approach someone? Do they approach you? Is it a bit of both? How do those collaborations evolve? All of them are a little bit different, uh, specifically with Apple Pen. And earlier this year, we also did John and Vinny's. So any type of like local collaboration we're doing, uh, we just try to do something that they haven't done before. Like at the time, John and Vinny's hadn't come out with any hoodies before. 
Um, and so we met the guys and it made sense to work on something together. Uh, with Apple Pan, there was actually recently a change of ownership and we knew the family that had just purchased it and we pitched the idea to them and thought it would be a cool way for a company that's so like iconic to LA who's never done any type of clothing right. uh, to release something around like the holiday time. Yeah. So that's how that one came to be. Yeah. And so once you once you have this idea of, OK, we're going to go pitch to Apple Pen, what what what's the next step? Obviously contacting them. But in terms of what you present to them, like how did that pitch meeting look like? For sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it was as like structured as maybe you think. Um, some of like the bigger brands that we're working on collaborating with in like years to come, there's, of course, more prep and more invo involvement in terms of pitching. For Apple Pants specifically, like we were both generally interested in the idea. So it was more about us like coming together and, and having designs that we felt like would resonate with them. And we worked with this cool artist who drew the actual space. And I don't know if you saw the yeah, back of it. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. T-shirts and, and crewnecks. But um, it was just like a real way to bring it to life. And, and I think we were both like on the same page in terms of like their direction of it. So then it just became about like the details of how many we were releasing and, and all of that. But yeah. And so for people who aren't familiar with the A to Z process, so once you have the design, what's like, tell me everything that needs to happen from the moment you have this design till the moment it ends up online or in stores. For sure. So for us, since we produce here still, uh, we cut and sew everything in um, downtown, like I mentioned. And so the process would generally be like the garments get cut and sewn, right? Like we have our styles that we've developed and right. those are, we use like 11 core styles right now. Um, and those are developed, they go to the dye house, they're dyed, whatever that certain project needs. They go to printing, then they go to finishing. If they need the hood stitch, that's where they would get that. Um, they get packed, they get sent. If it's an online release only, it gets sent to our fulfillment center. Uh, if not, it goes to fulfillment center and also the stores and then we're ready to release it uh in that time there's also of course like shooting it element and the creating of the content and the story we're telling around it uh that usually we roll out on across our social media channels and our blog and all of that uh but that's just like one part that happens after uh right. the production's done tell me about how you guys come up with the narrative for new pieces as they come out yeah so i think it's been important for us to have stories with with the different collaborations we're releasing and the new pieces we're coming out with so we're just always working on trying to tell an authentic story to our brand uh mental health and optimism and positivity are those are like the three main things of the brand and something that we think shines through in like all the releases we do uh and it, and sometimes when it doesn't it's just probably that we didn't do a good enough job of telling that story so it's something we're working on as uh we go into next year and start expanding yeah, something that I really like about the brand is lifestyle brand is such a nebulous term that I hear all the time these days. And you guys actually have tangible manifestations of that. So you have, whether it's panels or other, you know, telling telling us narrative in a very clear way where it makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about how you take these ideas and actually communicate them and make them like key parts of your brand? Because I think when a brand is really effective it's like if they were your friend you know where they would eat you know like what they would recommend to you and i feel like with mad happy i get that sense a bit can you talk about that process yeah i think 
again, when we started, we, we started from like a very authentic place and that like we were throwing events that like we would want to go to and hosting events that we would want to go to. And, and I think because we started there and because the name Mad Happy like is like the essence of actually what we're doing, uh, it made a lot of the things much easier. And so I think that we've tried to stick to that and we set a pretty high bar at the beginning, both like with collaborations and pop-ups and, and how we did everything there. So we've tried to stick by that and continue like uh, upping the ante there. So um, I think that's just been like a natural result of one, like the luck, the lucky part of having a great name and two, just everyone being like focused on like setting a really high bar for the brand. And Today was actually my first time realizing, and it's probably just because I'm I could I should be more observant. But there's a period at the end of the name. Was there any thought about that, or was it was it just like Mad Happy period? Yeah, I think uh, my brother, who I think decided or wanted to have the period, would probably be able to say more on that. But in general, for us, like the thing about Mad Happy is that like everyone has like a different feeling when they like say the name, and and that's kind of the point is like there's not like one definition of it. So you can kind of think of it however you want and, and whatever it means to you. Um, that's why we do those things in our pop-ups, like the blank makes me mad happy and people right. can write whatever they want, right? Like some people think that they have to write a negative thing. Some people write a positive thing and there's like a whole mixture of feelings associated with it, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. You guys are, for the most part, from LA with the exception of Josh. I don't know if he's, is he from LA as no, well? No, he's from New York. Okay. So you, for the most part, you guys are from LA, but you could have set up shop anywhere how did you decide you want to stay in LA and make sure your products are manufactured here? Cause I'm sure you could do it for cheaper elsewhere. Yeah. So in terms of like being set up here, I think it was just due to the fact that most of us were from here and this is where we started the brand. Uh, in terms of manufacturing, again, it was like something that we started doing early on and right now it's been helpful for us uh, because we're super close to the product. It doesn't mean that it will always be like that, and we're and we're open to other manufacturing partners as well, especially as uh, we start to go international. Uh, it'll make more sense to widen our supplier base, but those are like how we made those initial choices. Right, and you guys have had a lot of success with getting influential people to wear it on their own without having to to pay them. Is that just what? What do you think attributes to getting that natural buy-in? I think a few things one people can really relate to the name and the message and and the vibe we're kind of going for right like that optimistic lifestyle is like something people want to strive towards uh so i think that's helpful two i think our clothes are pretty unique in that you know the stitching and there's different like elements that you can't really get elsewhere and three like at the end of the day like we knew people would wear the product because the name's really good but if the product wasn't good they wouldn't keep wearing it and i think that that's been super helpful for us, right? It's like most people buy our stuff because like they love the name and what we're doing, but also like the clothes are really good. So that's why you keep like coming back and supporting. Right. And I mean, how do you guys decide? Cause right now you're in this very exciting position of growth. So as you guys are deciding to grow, how do you decide where you want to have a pop-up and for how long? And I know you're now going into longer term pop-ups, but how do you decide strategically? Cause you don't want to, there's, there's, um, there can be issues with growing too big, too fast. So how do you decide like, okay, we're going to go to this city. We'll be there for this long. What, what's the decision-making process? So right now our team's still small enough where 
it's a little bit hard to grow too fast uh, because we're just like limited in terms of like resources. Like we can't really open up more than two pop-ups at once, even if we wanted to right now. So I think one, that's helpful. And two, I think we just have a general idea of places that we want to open one, because we have a big audience there, but two, because it's a good like next step for the brand. So that's kind of how we talk about where we think we're going to go next. And of course with pop-ups, it's a little bit hard to be like, this day we want to open in this place because we're very particular on the locations we open in and how long we're open and the season that we're open for. So sometimes that doesn't work as well as like we hope. So either we delay a pop-up or we don't even do one. So we plan ahead as much as we can. And then we're like flexible with the best opportunities that come to be. Yeah. Your collection reminds me a little bit like a museum where you have like the permanent exhibit and then you have these rotating new pieces that come in. And I really like that. Can you talk about how you decide just we're going to have permanent and we're going to have these new ones? And then how do you how often do you try to roll out new pieces? Because I feel like in the past two months, a lot of stuff has come out. Yeah. Um, so I think earlier on, due to the nature of just how we were producing, we were just doing like quote unquote drops and then there'd be nothing available for like a few weeks or a month until we release something else. And at the end of the day, like, while that stuff's really great and it's good to have like limited pieces. We also wanted to have stuff that was more always available and that like someone should be able to come on the website and be able to get something like they shouldn't be able to get everything at all times. But, um, when we made that decision, we started putting more and more like thought into what should always be available and how does that rotate through? Uh, and then what are we releasing in, in addition to that? And that's like the two releases a month we're doing right now. Sometimes more, like you said, when there's a collaboration and stuff that just comes up. Um, but I think it's just cool to be able to like keep people on their toes. And also just content wise, like makes a lot of sense for us because people just want to see new stuff all the time on on Instagram and across everywhere. Yeah. And you guys have done such a good job on social media. How do you is there an overall strategy that goes with it or what is the discussion around how you guys are portraying your brand? Cause that's especially now that you guys are, like you said, you can only do two pop-ups at a time. I think that's a really important part of your reach. So what's the thought that goes behind that? Yeah. Most of our reach does come from our Instagram actually. And my brother, um, has done a good job of just curating that and spending a lot of time making sure that the content's like super fresh and, and, and exciting so that people are excited to like it, share it and, support it when it comes out um but but yeah but for us like we're that's like one tool we've been using well and and we'll adjust it as we go into next year we're going to be releasing like a lot more content both video audio um written through our blog um so so i think it, it'll be interesting to see like how we adjust it as we go from like primarily clothing to all clothing as well as other things um so that's what we're excited about this past year was a big year for you guys especially in terms of growth. And I think a lot of people who may have not been familiar with the brand before uh, really took notice when you guys got the big investment from LVMH. Could you talk a little bit about uh, collaborating or working with a larger entity and, and the benefits of getting that, that funding? Yeah, when we wanted to raise money, uh, we started thinking about it at the end of last year. So before that, we hadn't raised any money. And so early this year we were fundraising and just trying to bring more like strategic partners on. Like we weren't really trying to go the venture route. Um, one, because we don't think it works very well for apparel brands. And two, because they're this brand, like we don't know exactly like how fast it should grow and, and what decisions we want to make. And when you take on venture, like your options are kind of more limited. 
And so for us, it was about first going to the people we knew that had built great brands in the past and trickling to meeting other people. And uh, we set up a, a pretty good round in March that we announced. Um, and then we got this other, we got LVMH as a partner as well that was announced in October. But I think in general, all of our investors have been people or companies or groups that have founded great brands in the past, whether in apparel or not and are able to help in very specific ways. So I think that's been an interesting thing for us uh, to go through and, a, and definitely a good experience. And I would say like, of course, like at the beginning of this year, like almost no one knew who we were. And now that we're kind of coming up on the map, uh, it's just cool to see and just like means like we have to just keep working hard. Yeah, and there's something that can get tricky about when you're trying to translate creative ideas to business people. And I know LVMH, their portfolio is, is fashion, so that makes sense. But I'm sure there were still business people in those meetings who asked questions about numbers, and you still had to come in with a lot of stats. So how do you, how do you present the brand so you're communicating both the creativity of it, but also the business potential so you can get those people on board? Yeah, I think in terms of creative and the community we've built, like it's pretty clear you could see it through the product, uh, which our investors love and uh, stories about the pop-ups we've done and the panels and, and the block parties and all of that. And then in terms of the business side, of course, like at the end of the day, this like is still a business. Um, and while we're like connected to like a larger social cause, like the only way we can make a big impact is to run a profitable business. So uh, that's been super important to us from day one. So uh, made that pretty clear and with everyone that we met with. And Focusing on the block parties, I, I just went to the one that was in Melrose Place this past summer and I thought it was awesome. And for anybody who hasn't been to Melrose Place, it's a very cool, trendy street. But I think until the past couple of years, until you had Alfred Coffee there and even Matt Happy has helped with this, it was kind of like a very high fashion, very expensive uh, place to be. Not necessarily trendy until fairly recently. And I think it now has a little bit more of an accessible feel, which is really nice. And it was really awesome to have that little section shut off and throw a block party logistically how does that even happen like how do you set all that up yeah well first i would say that josh from alfred like did a great job of basically recreating that whole block um and i would bet that most of the traffic that comes on that block now is is due to alfred being there um but for us i think when it was actually last year when we threw our first one and we had a pop-up on Merrill's place uh as well in a different location and we want to throw that, of course, launch party we always do, but our space was much smaller and there wasn't the space for it. So my brother just looked into if it, it was even possible to throw some sort of block party. And last year we did it on like a week's notice, which was pretty crazy um, on a really low budget. And of course, like there's a lot of permitting and and fees and different things involved. So we were able to get that done. And then this year we just wanted to like kind of take it to the next level. Uh, so we have like about 2000 people this year. Um, fully closed off street uh larger clothes than last year and and just like a, f a fun night with like a bunch of different elements to it and i think it's exciting because like we don't really think most brands can get like two thousand people to come almost anywhere and we just want to do like bigger and bigger events whether it's like bigger block parties or even like larger scale format events what was that night like for you specifically were you like a chicken with your head cut off or did you get a chance to enjoy a bit as well yeah i think like the way I enjoy those parties is like if everyone else is. So it's not really about um, 
like if we enjoy it a lot, especially like when there's a lot going on, like a block party. Um, but yeah, I had a great night. And I think for the most part, it went very smoothly. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was exciting. I think we, we always learned a lot from those bigger events and how we could improve on them next year. And so we're excited to keep it going. Yeah. What do you think, you know, that you guys have done well? If you, if you had that recap meeting today and you had like the pluses and minuses, what kind of stood out to you as some strengths that came out of that? And what are some opportunities? From the block party? From, yeah. And opportunities for growth. Yeah. So from the block party, like the biggest area for growth would be the, the line management aspect. So we had a lot of people coming in at the same time. And the way we had closed off the street uh, was not really accounting for like the number of people we we thought would come at one time also because we had stricter security than we anticipated so the security was like very serious about thoroughly checking everyone as they should and so i think that's like one big area of improvement uh there's also some lighting and sound stuff that we can improve for next year uh but overall i think we did a good job in the layout of the party right where it was big enough where you could walk around, but like also not too big where it felt empty. Um, and that's kind of just like what we've gotten better at is like how to set up these parties so that everyone has a great time, can have their own space if they want, but also can be like engaged with where like all the action is too. Yeah. And one of the things I really liked was you didn't necessarily have to be super familiar with the brand coming in to have a really good time. And I think that's from what I've read was also the hallmarks of the early parties that you guys threw was just focus on making sure people have a good time. And if they enjoy themselves, they'll come back to the brand. Can you talk a little bit about like how you structure it? Because I know a lot of brands who will throw parties. It's very in your face and you feel pressured to like buy something. There are people coming up to you, pressuring you to buy stuff. And so how do you how do you create an environment where people enjoy themselves, but you subtly kind of plant the seed of your brand? Yeah, for us, the parties have never been about people buying stuff. Of course, like you end up doing a decent amount of sales because there's so many people there and they want to support the brand. But the thing about our parties is for the most part, they're free, if not a donation to one of our um, charity partners. And it really isn't just about the clothes, right? Like if anything, it's not about clothing at all. And it's more about just having a good time with your friends and, and meeting new people in your community. And, and so I think like that approach we've taken since like day one, like that Robertson party we threw and, of course at the time like no one knew our brand anyway so like that was why it made so much sense like now people know it and like associate like our parties with like a general feeling of i guess a good time they had so that's what we're just trying to keep up and of course as it gets bigger like there's different considerations and if you if you have sponsors you have to be making them happy so there's it's definitely more complicated now uh but i think at the end of the day it's like still like that just like the root of like having a good time with your friends. Yeah. Now, if I could have you jog your memory back to the early days, what were some of the challenges of getting started just launching a brand? What were some of the challenges? I think there's so many challenges in general when you, you launch anything. Um, and even when you try to run any type of business, uh, for us, we were pretty new in that we had never had an online store before. Right. So, we originally launched on Squarespace and now we're on Shopify, of course, um, as everyone is. But I think like we learned a lot there, right? Like there's there's definitely better places to launch your website. And uh, as you begin to grow, there's different opportunities that you have to weigh 
both sides of and when you're trying to do production which is pretty challenging uh, especially in LA, it's like working with the right vendors, right? Like you don't really know who to be working with earlier on. And you're kind of just banking on the people you get introduced to at the beginning. And you kind of hope that they're good and, and learn along the way, the people not to work with. So I think those are some of the initial challenges, but, but honestly, like everything's like pretty challenging at the beginning because like we are also very young, so we didn't have that much like other experience with any type of business or brand. Yeah. Now fast forward to this year. Can you walk me through specifically a challenge that came up? You guys are a little more established, but something comes up and can you walk me through how you resolve that? Just to give me a sense of your like problem solving process. For sure. I think we have a range of different problems that come up um, from time to time. Uh, something that happens maybe once or twice a year is uh, a certain batch of production. There'll be like something that we didn't expect on it. Um, I think for us, like we, we've been trying to put in more systems to be able to like catch that earlier. Right. So like if you know that there's some like damaged product and you see it at the end when it already got the stitching and it's already in the bags, it's like a much bigger cost and also a much bigger hassle to fix right. um, than if you caught it earlier. Um, so so I think like for us, like that's like the biggest thing is like sometimes uh, we we're doing so much and we're producing so much at one time that we can't really like check everything as well as we used to in the past. Um, and I think that's something we're working on going into next year is just setting up the right systems for, for quality control. And then also like what to do when things go wrong and be able to like act more quickly. Yeah. And so as you grow, you have to bring on more people, I imagine. And you're at a point where you're interviewing people. So what do you, what do you look for when you're bringing someone onto the brand? Yeah, I, I think for us, like this is the f kind of the first year that we've had to do any significant hiring. And like I said, we're only at 10 people right now, so still fairly small. When when you're working in a startup, like there's so many positions that you need, right? So you just have to like really be able to prioritize like the specific ones that can get you to like the next phase of the company. And so for us, it starts with like first identifying those, which is like, ever changing and then also like it's really like dependent on the actual person right i think like this year we thought we would hire xyz roles and we ended up meeting different people at different times that we weren't thinking about for example hiring and inventory planning this year but we met someone great and she's been a great addition to the team so i think having an open mind also is important but at the end of the day like for us it's like when you work in a startup, like you have to make certain sacrifices. Like it's not going to be the same as like your last job. So people have to be like really aligned on like how we're planning to grow and what kind of work ethic we put into the job. Because sometimes like there's like a mismatch there, right? Yeah. Like some people are used to a specific kind of uh, work environment that we can't really afford to do here at this point in time, which is completely fine right. um, if it's not a good fit. But I think trying to identify those things and being honest earlier um, is really important instead of just like pretending like it's all good and, and it'll figure itself out because usually it doesn't. So I think that that's the biggest thing for us. And you personally, you, if I'm not mistaken, were in investment banking before, right? Yeah, so a very different work environment from where you are now. So how do you make that jump? Like mentally, it's just a different day. Yeah, for sure. I think um, when I went, I went to Michigan and I was in the business school and like a lot of people are basically like groomed to either go into like banking or consulting or like these like 
defined roles. So I think I got like kind of stuck in that and I got a cool job in New York and I was doing that for a bit. Um, it's pretty, it's of course very different. Um, also just like working for someone versus like being your own boss is like completely different. Um, but I think in a lot of ways it's still like similar, like work ethic type things. And, uh, of course, like that wasn't something I was like super passionate about. So, um, it's just different when it's like your own brand and like you care so much about it. What's been one of the biggest changes for you personally going from a situation where you were working in this corporation to being your own boss? I think the hardest thing as you start to grow a company is like learning all the stuff that goes into running a company that isn't like the specific business. So like the management of the people and how you should be hiring and uh, the systems to set in place and the culture you want to create in your company. Uh, I think all these things are really challenging and you really have to spend time doing it. And I think I didn't really realize that as much earlier on. And when we were smaller and it was just us four, us five with our designer, like maybe that wasn't as big of a need because like we were all in one room at all times. But now that it gets bigger, like trying to be better at the communication aspect of it and, and just realizing how to work with different types of people, right? Like both on the creative side and on the more business side, but also just like everyone's different and you have to treat people like differently based on like how they work best yeah and you're the liaison between different fields because you're overseeing the whole thing so how how is your approach to working with someone on the design side different from somebody maybe on like i don't know the accounting side or business side how do you how do you tailor your approach depending on who you're talking to in the company yeah so i'd say for the most part uh my brother's managing um the creative and the design side but i think something we've been trying to do a better job of is like having more open communication because a lot of time like we see it one way and they see it a different way and if, if we don't talk about it then it it just like creates like unnecessary like tension there between like the two sides when we're obviously all on the same team and just all trying to figure out how to best like grow this company um and of course with creative people like they they're very like specific and particular to like the things they like so trying to work with them to really like feel like they feel like they're in a good place uh is really important how do you think the different backgrounds of you guys as co-founders has complemented what you're doing here yeah i think my brother was doing a lot of um so him and mason started a clothing brand together in high school and then my brother was doing a lot of celebrity styling so like he had a lot of experience in clothing in general um and also just brand um and me and Josh were a bit different in that like we were more like on the business and operation side. So I think like we definitely like complement each other in great ways. I think at the end of the day though, like none of us had or still have like the experience of like running a company. So I think that's like a learning process for everyone and figuring out like who's best for certain like leadership and management type roles is also important. Um, and something that we've just been working through as we continue to grow. Sure. And then one one key part of a brand like yours is when you drop something, people rush to buy it and it can get sold out very quickly. And sometimes that's intentional. How do you decide how much to stock of each thing you're bringing? Yeah, I think that's a good question. For us, it's not necessarily about everything selling out right when it comes out, like especially when we come out with stuff that's like more on like, quote unquote, permanent side. Like there's almost no point of that specific thing selling out so fast. And also sometimes like we want to stock more of something because we really like believe in the product and we feel like it's not as like seasonal or as like specific to the time. So for us, like 
it's definitely a learning experience and also working with Bethy who does our inventory planning has been helpful there because we could test different things and see what does well and what doesn't. And so what's the sign of a successful product for you guys? Is it something that's sold out or is, is it very numbers driven or how do you decide like this did well, this needs more time or this did not do well? Yeah, I think that we've set up a few systems so that when something does come out, like it's been through a lot of different steps. So we feel like uh, we really believe in it. We, of course, know that like not everything is going to like sell out super fast because not everything has like this crazy amount of like hype towards it. And that's fine. Um, but but I think for us, it's like more about like how that product does like over, you know, a couple of weeks and how it performs in store because some things perform better in store than online. And um, and just really like learning from that. And then as we continue to grow, figuring out like what like that more permanent side looks like versus uh, the stuff that's like more seasonal and coming in and out. Right, right. And so if somebody wants to launch their own brand, they feel very inspired from hearing from you and they, they have an idea that they're passionate about. What suggestions do you have for somebody who's trying to create their own brand? In clothing specifically? Sure, in clothing, yeah. I would say that uh, for the most part, like having partners that, quote unquote compliment each other is like really important so like um if it's just creative or if it's just business like it won't work uh especially in clothing um and especially more specifically in fashion so i think that's very important and then just trying to speak to people in your network so that you're working with really good vendors is also very important because when you first launch a brand you have almost no control over anything especially your production and uh, working with trustworthy people, even if it costs a little bit more, is probably worth it in the long run, especially when you're so small, uh, because they have all the control and leverage over you. So building a relationship over time like, is really, really important if um, it's going to be successful in any way. And as you guys were starting, you kind of alluded to it where you have to figure out who to work with and who not to work with. And that's kind of just a trial by error thing. And I'm sure in the manufacturing process also you realize, okay, these people were great or these guys were not so great. How do you, how much do you set aside as like a rainy day fund in case something went wrong with a vendor or with the manufacturer? Yeah, I think for the most part, like issues come up all the time and it's just being able to like negotiate with the vendors on, on how you're going to proceed. So it's not really like we're setting aside money, but more so like, you know, if 10% of the product was messed up, like figuring out some sort of, discount or a uh, way that we could do business together in the future. And when that doesn't work, we're happy to move our business elsewhere. And I think now we're in a position where we can be more picky. Whereas before, like we didn't really have that optionality. So that that's how we think about it. And maybe that's not the best way, but I think we've done a good job of balancing both like the relationships, right? So if you're working with someone for years and years like you probably don't need to like be worried about a couple hoodies that got messed up yeah uh where but also balancing like this still has to be a profitable business and we can't just be losing five percent here or five percent there because right. it really adds up right one thing that's so important in fashion is inspiration and constantly coming out with something that's people find ahead of the curve how do you know, and I know your your company is in primarily basics, but there are graphic designs on all the things. And even with the basics, there's cool flourishes of texture and cut and on all that. How do you how do you either go about trying to set the trend or anticipate what people will appreciate? Yeah, again, I, I would just say like I'm probably not the best person to talk to about that because 
at the end of the day, my brother's making most of the creative decisions for our company. Um, but for the most part, like it's just about like not settling. Like it's pretty easy to come out with stuff that just like would make sense in general, but that doesn't mean that that's the best thing that could come out at that time. And also looking at it more like holistically, like every design and every collection has to like feed into like the larger story and not just like be a standalone cool design or graphic. And when you're looking at things like that as well, it's like, does it make sense for our specific brand uh, versus like, oh, is it just cool? Like in general uh, are two very different things. So that's also something that is always being balanced on the creative side. And what are some of the larger goals you have as a brand with regard to mental health awareness? That's a great question. So for us, mental health kind of grew out of what we were doing early on. So the name Mad Happy, like I said, Mason thought of it. And Mason was my first friend that I spoke about mental health with, like growing up and in high school. Um, and so it was kind of fitting that when we were launching and we were trying to create this like optimistic, positive brand that was kind of the opposite of the brands we grew up with in L.A., um, that we would have like a larger mission around something and mental health was obviously like the perfect thing for us. One, because like we had personal ties to it, but two, because no brand has ever really talked about mental health or made it their thing. And it's a very like non-tangible thing. Like it's not like Tom's, I was donating shoes to third world countries. Like that's a very clear way that they're helping. Um, for us, like we wanted to like play our role in the space. So I think what that means for us um, on the digital and physical side is like hosting events and just creating conversation around it is the most important thing. And then also having like the resources so that anyone at any time can access it on our website, on our podcast, on our uh, YouTube page. So it's really about a balance of working with professionals to create amazing resources in our own way and our own flair, but also like interviewing really cool people that are associated with the brand but letting them share their mental health story I think opens the gate for uh, more and more people to feel like it's okay to talk about and it's okay to help their friend or get help or all those sorts of things. And then on the product side, it's trying to do a few specific targeted projects a year that uh, there's a donation element, but there's more of an awareness thing, right? Like for us, like we're, we're not like trying to make everything about donation. Like we're not trying to be like, Oh, like this is how much we raise. Like we think we make more of an impact on the awareness we can bring to the space and to the specific organizations that we work with. So for example, we did this party, um, in New York around like July 4th and we raised like $50,000 oh, for wow. the Jet foundation, wow. uh, which is one of the partners we work with. And, um, that's like an amazing way to, raise a significant amount of money for them. But, but I would argue that the stuff we've done for them on, on an awareness standpoint through the releases we've done, um, has been more impactful for them and has gotten more and more people, uh, involved with the organization. I really admire your approach. It's a really impressive, holistic way of thinking about it. And for anybody who has a chance to go to check out a store, I highly encourage it, especially if you're in LA, because in LA, I grew up like you with going into these stores on Fairfax and La Brea that, you're basically invisible as a consumer. Like they, they basically just keep looking at their phone and don't acknowledge you. And it's really nice to walk into a mad happy store where one, the store itself is welcoming. Like even if I just walked in and nobody was there, I would just feel more at peace. But the people who work there are also very pleasant people. And I'm wondering, is there any training you do on the sales side, like when you're onboarding people to be in your stores? Yeah, I think it's something that we're constantly working on. Uh, earlier on, we were working in the stores ourselves, so it was easier. And then now 
we started hiring people for the stores and hiring a store manager. And I think it all starts with like the example you set. And of course, like at the end of the day, it's a pop-up and it's a temporary store. So it's sometimes hard to like motivate people like to the extent that we want. But I think we've done a good job of just bringing like-minded people in working in our spaces. And if someone's not um, able or willing to just like have that kind of positive mentality, then they're not a great fit for the store. So I think it's a learning process. And I think in retail in general, like hiring super challenging for that reason. Uh, but we're working on it and just trying to get better as we go. Cool. And I want to wrap up with just some fun, quick ones. Um, what was the last piece of clothing you bought yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I bought, I actually bought Birkenstocks yesterday for the first time. Um, I used to kind of hate on them, but they're like very comfortable and, um, really good for like walking and different things like that. So uh, I just got those. Nice. And what's your favorite city? Wow, that's a good one. I, probably like Florence, Italy. Like I was born there. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so yeah, cool. My brother and I were born there. Um, and so we go back with like our family all the time. And it's just like that like nostalgic feeling is like really cool. But also like different parts of Italy as well are like amazing. So nice. probably somewhere what's, there. What's an app on your phone you can't live without? Ooh. Let's question. say not text or calling, not yeah. text or phone. Let's, let's think a little outside the box. Uh, probably, probably Overcast, um, which is a podcast app that I think is the best podcast app, but I definitely listen to a lot of podcasts, so um, have enjoyed that app. Nice. What's your favorite restaurant? Favorite restaurant? Wow. Honestly, that's pretty hard. I, I will say that I was in like Mexico City like two weeks ago for, for the first time, and uh, I was pretty shocked at how good the food was there and also like we would have these like crazy meals and it would be like 40 or $50 each. And, um, it just like inspired me to want to like try more food and like new places, um, versus only thinking about like LA and New York and those types of places. Nice. And we always like to finish by asking our guest, what's your jam? Cause we're creating a Spotify playlist where we'll put each song rack on. Oh wow. So what's your jam? One song, one song could be anything. Um, I mean, one song I've always really liked, and this is probably a cop-out answer, but is uh, One Dance by Drake. Sounds good. It's a good one. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Payman. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. If you'd like to learn more about Payman or Matt Happy, you can follow them at Payman Raff or at Mad Happy. And you can check out the pod at HDYD Pod. Thanks for listening.